Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Very good. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. This time, uh, live from Sydney in my case, I'm over here for an for an. Um, Alternative Investment Management uh, Industry Association um, gathering, which should be fascinating uh, tomorrow, um, and then across to India, and you're there really holidaying, I think, and seeing your family. Isn't that Sometimes. the truth of it? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. I still have, uh, we all carry your work where we go, but yes, this is a truly global and international podcast because I'm in India, you're in Sydney, and we have our guest was in Europe, so it's fantastic. Exactly. Who's who's currently in Lisbon, in Portugal? So, um, so classically um, decentralized, which is what we're all about. Um, so, thank you, Nitin, for inviting along our guest of today, which is Anthony Day. Hi, Anthony. Hey, Derek. Hey, Nitin. Thank you so much for having me on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, delighted. Absolutely. Hey, Anthony. Um, so, maybe a little bit of background about uh, Anthony, because you're one of these great people that helps put organizations together and make, helps them understand the benefits of using technology wrapped around blockchain, creates commercially viable digital transformations, which is not a small task in, in this constantly evolving industry. What is really interesting is you tend to combine digital capabilities such as blockchain along with artificial intelligence, Internet of Things devices, digital identification, open platform and cloud. Um, and then you work with clients on that because, I mean, that is a potpourri of sort of great opportunities that, and they connect well, so well together. So like us, um, you're a passionate engager of education and community um, and you like helping really non-experts learn more about this space and learn more about the value of blockchain, which is so core to all of this and it's what we do too. Um, you've got 65 thousand followers on LinkedIn, which is extraordinary. Gee, Nitin, just when I thought you and I had a good number, I know, now we I know. really got to lift our game. Um, and But you do a great program called, uh, a podcast called Blockchain Won't Save the World. And so for those that are watching on YouTube or can see this on LinkedIn when we put it up there, we're going to put all those links underneath so that you can catch up and link to to um, Anthony on LinkedIn and and see the blockchain won't save the world, etc. But welcome along. Thank you so much for joining us. And maybe to start by telling us why you're living in such a gorgeous location there in Lisbon in Portugal. Thanks, Derek. And thank you for the kind introduction. Hello, everybody. So for those who don't know, this is my second or kind of coming to my third week of living with my family here in Lisbon in Portugal. Prior to that, we were living in Dublin for seven years and prior to that living in London for about 10 or so. The, the reason I'm here is kind of a conflation of a number of different factors. 
um, getting to know and work with colleagues at Parity Technology, having spent the last two or so years in and out of lockdowns and you know, challenging experiences that I'm sure very many of us have all had, and getting to an inflection point of saying, where do we want to spend the next two or three years of our lives? And it was impossible to ignore that there was a significant amount of movement, people considering relocating to different locations. I've had colleagues who've been living on boats for two or three years and using Starlink as their day to day. And the more you hear the stories of success, the more you hear people doing it, the more invitations you get to come out and start thinking, well, what if? Would it be possible? And so spent a small amount of time doing some research into schools, houses, language, all of this sort of stuff. And we just went for it. And Honestly speaking, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, family reasons, weather, food, cost of living, uh, Web3 community, crypto friendly environments, and, 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 right? All, all good reasons to be in a place kind of compounded on top. So that's why we're here. Mm. It's, and, and you're not the only one we've met along the way. Uh, so it's obviously quite a rapidly growing community there. And Nitin, you were only there a couple of weeks back, weren't you? Yeah, I was there last week and I couldn't agree more. I think uh, it's a vibrant community. It's great food, great climate, and it's not as expensive as the rest of Europe. So I, I, I'm with Anthony on this that I think it has a lot of great things working for, you know, for Lisbon uh, to start something new, to plug yourself into the ecosystem. And that's probably why I think, you know, Anthony, you moved from uh, Dublin, I take it, to, to Lisbon. Both great places, I, I would say. Yeah, it's, it has been. And I mean, the, the one indicator that I thought was most interesting and kind of talks to the warmth, um, kind of in an abstract term rather than a literal term around Lisbon is having put out a casual message. I think it was a Thursday night or something last week. Wasn't really even thinking about it. Put out on LinkedIn. Oh, you know, I've just updated my location status from Dublin, Ireland to Sintra in Portugal. And, you know, the barrage of invitations uh, oh go meet this person go meet that person you should check out this place here's a retreat where there's a whole bunch of work three people working together oh the porto scene is better the braga scene is better come check us out down here <laughs> i've had more invitations to coffees beers lunches dinners from people based out here with a passion for this technology than i had in seven years in dublin in the course of a week um, wow. yeah, probably also to a factor of 10. And that talks to people out here are friendly, they're warm, they want to connect. There's a real sense of community. And that to me is what Web3 is all about. Look, I think if you lift the veil, a lot of cities would have a quieter community that sits underneath them. Um, I mean, you know, I'm based in Perth in Western Australia. That just happens to be where I live. And, and as we all know, our companies spread all over the place with our representatives all over the world. And, and, you know, this is the most isolated city in the world and it's a mining town. And we still every month have a blockchain breakfast with some 20, 25 people at it these days. Uh, and they are entrepreneurs and family officers and, and, and web developers and code cutters, etc. It's really there. But you know, it, it kind of begs the question, you know, which is the leading blockchain country? And, and what would you define, by the way, as a leading blockchain company, what's the definition of leading? If you're a blockchain development uh, developer and you know best country to operate out of, do you think? Yeah, that's a really that's a really great question, and I'm glad you asked it. Not from having had any preparation prior, of course, uh, but the last two or three years of my show has been focused very much around trying to understand what has been the evolution of blockchain technology and blockchain communities in countries that aren't America, right? Because America gets enough limelight, it gets enough press, and enough column inches mm. today. So, what about the rest? So, I've been doing research into Brazil, Malta, Israel, 
the Netherlands, Germany, Japan, UAE, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all over trying to get a sense, Singapore as well, of how did this start? Um, what drives a community in technology? Because blockchain by its nature is intended to be decentralized, right? Global, borderless, designed for assets to move fluidly, for liquidity and capital to move fluidly, for people to be able to connect trustlessly without identifying themselves or without any predefined trust or brand behind them to connect to this technology. So, so what's the role of a country in all of that? Um, and whether we like it or not, you know, we are based in different cities, we're based in different countries, we pay our taxes, we're part of a society that isn't Web3, right? There's, there's the physical world and all of the other stuff that goes with it. And so what's, what was different about some of these locations? And so if, if I pick kind of my, my small smattering of my favorites from the show so far, um, I really enjoyed the stories around Singapore. I really enjoyed the story about Canada. Switzerland has been particularly strong and the UAE. Sure. And if you look at each of those different countries, I don't think any of them desperately set out to say, you know what, we're going to go and conquer the blockchain universe. If you look at countries like the UAE and Singapore, because they have less natural resources or because they've got less less strength or want to be less dependent on natural resources, should we say, they're looking at trying to create alternative strategies for national wealth or national competitiveness. So in, in that instance, you look at technology as an area. So UAE started with a national strategy for using and adopting the technology for government and municipal services. It didn't start saying we're going to attract a bunch of DGENs and, and get behind all the projects. It started there and they started using the technology for real. Singapore and Switzerland already had domestic strength in the financial services sector. And if you look at the very first vertical after Bitcoin and protocol layers, the very first vertical that really blew up within Web3 was DeFi. Decentralized finance is the cross-section of technology yeah. and finance. And so you have countries that have a national competitive advantage and or something significant to lose. So if you pick you know, Switzerland, you pick Singapore, you look at London or you know, the cluster in New York, you start seeing that. Um, those are quite interesting of themselves. You take Malta as an example. You know, they are never going to be able to hold... 10, that 10 million people located and building technology on the island of Malta. But they started out with a view to be the regulatory center point for, for companies that want to reside in Europe or be regulated in Europe. And they started down that journey with some incredibly smart lawyers, some very forward thinking regulatory opinions and regulatory um, regulation, legislation, regulation. Um, but the sad story is that the projects didn't follow because at that point, a lot of the other nations had either caught up or usurped it. And, and layer on top of that, the, the kind of quality of life for projects, for developers, you know, how many people want to live in UAE versus Malta versus Singapore versus London versus um, Zug or Zurich. You've got a lot in the hopper. I mean, that's my opening salvo, but I, I was having this conversation with, with a, a, a new friend of mine, uh, Jose Hayes Santos, who is a historian based here out of Lisbon. He's been working in Web3 and he's been applying or at least using his knowledge of the history of um, the way societies have evolved, authoritarianism, democracy, and so on, into how this plays out in blockchain and Web3. Wow. And I think we can't ignore societal constructs and competitive, um, sure. competitive strategy of nations when we look at how this plays out. Yeah, so this is fascinating, Anthony. And again, thanks for being here, because I think your wealth of information. I follow your, you know, your blockchain one save the world, which is such a apt uh, title for your podcast. But on this show, we have compared various layer one is nation nation state status, right? In the sense that 
every country wants to attract capital, it want to attract talent, want to attract businesses and Ethereum and Bitcoin and Solana and Cardano and every every other layer one is doing exactly the same thing, right? Which is creating global communities, creating innovation, creating, attracting capital, whether it's coming through stablecoin or some sort of conversion from a Bitcoin or any other ecosystem around this. And as you compare uh, the talent moving across the UAE and Singapore, trying to be the hub of bringing the talent in. And if I were to overlay this with another layer and not to complicate this further is the utility of this. So if you look at utility of this, in your comparison of Singapore and, and UAE, which, which lacks a lot of natural resources, but make up in terms of much more friendly jurisdictions to attract talent and attract companies to operate. But if you look at the utility from India, Vietnam, Afghanistan, where it's needed the most, not just for payments, but also to preserve their wealth and preserve whatever little savings they've had. And I'm looking at this as a cross-section of nation-state status, countries, borders, people moving, uh, it's a fascinating time mm -hmm. when there is really no one really has a home anymore because now you're going for to, to Dubai because Polygon is there or you're going to to, uh, you know, to Lisbon, uh, you know, because Parity Labs is there. And so, so love to get your perspective. How do you navigate that intersection, which is uh, to me just fascinating of just human movement and the historian that you mentioned, uh, what is governance anymore? If I'm working in Metaverse, if I'm working in Web3.0, making money there, and somehow figuring out a way to translate that into fiat because I want to live in a place, it gives me a lot of choices as an individual, but it gives choices to everybody else too. Uh, so it's truly world coming together while in the real world, there's a lot of nationalist movement uh, that is emerging. So I'd love to get your perspective on that, uh, Anthony. Yeah, and then build into that, you know, Gary Gensler coming out saying that, you know, or at least the SEC hiding somewhere down in a much bigger pile of bureaucracy related to an ICO lawsuit saying that, you know, 45% of Ethereum, the majority of Ethereum transactions have taken place on nodes that are located physically in the United States. Therefore, Ethereum falls under American jurisdiction. Let's park that one for a second, because that's when it gets really, really interesting in terms of geopolitics. But the conversation Jose and I had, it came down to the people. Is if we if we assume that the the ability to connect to the technology to be able to link into Bitcoin or Ethereum or Polkadot or whichever whichever technology you choose to, is mostly borderless. Yes, you probably require some expertise, but even the developer community is borderless. So if you require technical support or if you're looking for somebody to develop on any of the platforms you have there, the world is your oyster. Right? The physical proximity to where the aid or where the system is being used is no longer required, which is a fantastic, fantastically liberating. Right, It allows for anybody with technical expertise to participate in the economy. It you know, lowers the barriers to entry for developers, for people looking to contribute to open source coding projects in terms of economic empowerment or economic engagement, just in terms of being able to do a job. I'm not talking about investing in tokens and seeing appreciation. Those barriers are lowered, and I think that becomes incredibly powerful. And so from, from that perspective, that, that just amplifies the problem, honestly, because yeah. what you as a nation are fighting for primarily is taxes. You know, when you know, yeah. people living in your country and companies paying your taxes while they're based there. If you think about Ethereum, you know, when at some point we had a market cap of $500 billion, it's probably something closer to 200 or something like that now. At that time and still today, it would have been the largest com company to ever have been created and established in Canada. And now it's based in Switzerland. Even though the majority of the founding talent was based in Canada, very happy in Canada, doing a great job there, but 
for the sake of regulation or for the sake of incorporation, there was no easy to navigate supportive structure for them to found in, in Canada where they were based. So off they went to Switzerland and very many of the other layer one foundations have done the same. If you look at some of the other considerations around you know, personal taxation, quality of life, if people can be fluid, they'll move wherever they get the best deal. So that might be UAE today or Lisbon today. It might be Ecuador or the North Pole tomorrow. I mean, the weather's yeah. different out there, but you know, the quality of life for the, for the developers and the core team matters and to them, taxation matters and so you're always going to see this competition for the people who are placed there and if if you're then fighting a constantly moving battle imagine that governments are not necessarily the most flexible or responsive in most cases yeah. when it comes to establishing or, or participating in emerging economies they've got the traditional economy to worry about to start with right is it worth fighting for, for the for this community you know, if, if you look at the amount of capital that comes with the Web3 community, their addressable spend while they're in the country, that's probably into the tens of billions if you look at the net worth of those participants. And so you're saying, well, would we like to become a place for those people to spend their net, that, you know, that their billions and millions on local property, on local food, you know, wine, events, automotive, whatever, whatever people spend their money on? Is that worth it? Or is it actually too complicated? to have to forge the regulation and create the incentive structures and then also the supporting infrastructure, right? So let's let's talk about support services like legal services, legal expertise, setting up um, expats and you know, establishing foundations or whatever else you might need to set up a business or to operate a business out of a new jurisdiction. There's a lot of effort in creating clusters like that if you don't have it already domestically and for then that potentially to be taken away by somebody else halfway around the world in a warmer climate, being able to undercut you. Yeah. And so the, the, the sad the sad kind of realization, it wasn't a realization because I don't think we've proved it yet, but the conclusion I was testing at the end of the conversation with Jose was, well, what's the point? Should, should nations bother to compete for Web3 or should we just let it go? Regulate it where we have to protect the national interest and just let national geopolitics play out as they would. Because if you're not competing today, will you ever? Yeah, true. And I think even, even from that perspective, right, the, the, the regulatory elements that every country is going to grapple with, isn't that just local in this case? Like whatever a country chooses to do, um, it's quite local. And I, I think we talk about bookend problems, right, in the sense that when your transaction happened between two endpoints, uh, do they have the same set of regulations? And if every country chooses to do what is best, and we've seen that with taxation in Europe, suddenly now you come with all, all you know, uh, having a minimum tax that every company has to pay a 15% or whatever the case was only because of the fact that every country was competing for talent. And suddenly now you had a, a, a global perspective on this, which I think will be interesting to see how this evolves because uh, I think many countries will be at loss and suddenly now you have these countries that are that's extracting the maximum utility will begin to favor these. And I think the pendulum will swing in the other way that you have begin to see development in these countries because they're attracting mm. talent and they're attracting uh, capital, I think. That to me has been constant uh, debate on this uh, as well. I think you certainly accentuate the point, uh, Anthony. Uh, Derek, there, I don't there, are many, there are many facets, aren't there, and Anthony? Because you know, when you talk about moving Web 3.0 or moving DeFi, there's developers, there's fund fundraising, there's there's um, the structures, the tech, and the the um, taxation. 
Um, there's the lifestyle of the people involved. There's, there's the actual audience and consumers and end use. So there's so many facets that I don't think you'll ever get everyone moving to one country for something. I mean, if you just look at the beginning of the big investment that went into this space, we were talking about this earlier on, Anthony, you know, the very first countries that went into this space, you know, they, they were New York, they were London, they were Singapore, they were Zurich, um, they were San Francisco. Uh, and so, as I said, what's the odd one out? Well, San Francisco is the odd one out because it's a software developing country, the a city. The rest of them, of course, are big finance centers. These guys are rapidly developing into this space because they can see decentralized finance as being both an opportunity and a threat to them. And so therefore these major cities becoming hubs relating to decentralized finance. But we may well see that Web 3.0 is getting funded out of America, developed in Portugal and sold into South Korea. <laughs> so there's no singular spot. That's the lovely thing about a frictionless environment that is truly decentralized in a utopian world, of course. It's a nice problem to have, and it's, I think it's quite liberating in terms of how it has played out. And we're still going to need to develop talent. I think if you look at Web3 going forward, it can't just be only staffed by the people who kind of found their way into it mid-career. Up to a point, there was nobody who'd, who'd only had their career working in Web3, but I think now nowadays, probably 10 or 12 years in, you probably do have a few people who've only ever worked in for, for decentralized projects or you know started their career working in a DAO or a guild or something like that. Mm. Going forward, we're still going to need to create talent. And talent is created, yes, from kind of empirical, empirical experience, but also to some extent from formal education. And so will we see talent hubs in terms of engineering, software engineering and architecture? Will we see talent hubs in terms of token economics and economic modeling? And who's going to make a play for that? That could be more at, at, an, at an academic level so you know, the University of Cambridge or the University of Oxford or Stanford or take your pick may have a really good crypto and economic program crossed over where the world's greatest token economists, token economists, token economists. We do call new terms on the show every now and then. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't think we allow that one, but this is, this is a playground that maybe not at a national level, but at a private sector level might be competed for. Um, legal services, again, now law, the law and kind of regulatory jurisdictions are typically very country specific a lot of the time, but you might find some hubs specifically around Europe where you have real strong centers of expertise on technology and the law starting to emerge. You could look at Estonia. Um, Portugal has a pretty, had a pretty strong history in the law because of its uh, kind of traditional experience as a trading hub. And, and you've got quite a lot of international trade flows coming through Portugal as well. Yeah. So you could see the private sector maybe picking this up if governments don't want to make a deliberate move. So, so help me understand this, Anthony. You know, we all, again, during both our IBM days, we've traveled the world. I've traveled a lot in this place. I continue to travel. Um, how do you view in this truly global landscape? And I find this truly global because I have worked with teams in seven different countries. Uh, even though working for IBM, it was a large corporation for any projects to find that diversity was practically impossible only because everything was concentrated into labs uh, in separate countries. So what's important from a founder and developer's perspective in terms of location? Because as a founder, you're trying to maximize your deployment of capital that you're raising in paying for talent. As a developer, you want to find 
access to both your cohorts, which are equally smart people, or access to infrastructure, uh, high bandwidth, which is there in advanced countries, uh, easily more easily available than, let's say, in, in, in emerging economies. Uh, and as a founder, you want to, again, have access to amazing tech talent, amazing technology. What is the balancing act there? Yeah, I think you've got to find a sustainable quality of life. A, a big part of Web3 founders is still there's a lot of travel from place to place. So if you're based in Maputo in Mozambique and you've got to fly 10 hours to the nearest hub to then fly another 12 hours to somewhere else and you're constantly rerouting in, in, in kind of through inefficient airline hubs, um, that's going to be a pain. But I don't think that's where you start. I just kind of came to me as I was thinking about it is logistics still remains important because this is still a people business. Deals still get made between individuals. You know, in the early stages, I think you have an idea, you have a technology team around you, maybe you're a technical founder, maybe you're, you're a technical co-founder. But a big part of it is help me, help me build the business, help me get the technology live, and then I'll worry about scaling later or scaling becomes less of an issue for me, but you know, put me around a core team that I can work with. And that could be remote for the longest time. Help me establish my business without, without fearing that I'm going to be sued by the SEC somewhere down the line. And so I think a big part of, I, I've, I've heard projects where they've said, we founded ourselves in Germany because we wanted the strictest financial services regulation we could find. Because if we can survive there, we can survive anywhere. Yeah. Others, others I've heard say, well, you know, we, we had some conversations with two or three law firms and these guys just presented very clearly the regulatory status, the exact issues that we might face as a token business or a, a business with kind of crypto underneath it. And, and that was compelling enough to us to start. And at the same time, we knew we could relocate if we had to. So yeah. part of it's going to be talent. Part of it's going to be help me protect what I create. But there's but, also... So yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. So, so there's also the fact that uh, a corporate entity can be in one location where you find the uh, regulations to be most appropriate to operate out of, and potentially um, the most beneficial tax regime to operate out of. Maybe not. Uh, but that's where the corporate entity is. You may well find the developers are in the country where the not just the capability, but the capacity is available too. There's a lot of capability in America, but there's a lot of capacity taken up by Google and Facebook and the other giants that are utilizing that. that. So there you are. So they're developing out of India, let's say. Um, and you've managed to raise the monies out of America because it's the largest finance center in the world for this. You see how this is coming together? There is no center in, in how this is operating. There's simply a corporate entity which is operating under a certain set of guidelines. Maybe that's the one that we're most concerned about at the moment, where that corporate entity is. And then people are choosing to have that lifestyle where they would like to work and you're outsourcing developers all around the world. And then you're looking for a global marketplace, which may well be, I mean, look at Axie Affinity that turned out to be in the Philippines. Um, so so I, I think, don't you think that maybe countries could start thinking about competing for these corporate structured locations um, in a manner not dissimilar to how <clears throat> Liechtenstein and Andorra and so many others compete with it, saying, be domiciled here, we're friendly, we understand the space, we're not going to give you the fabulous you know, SEC regulations back from the 1930s um, to try and put your, your project into. We're going to create regulations around this new technology. I, I, I'm with you. And in the early phase of growth, I think that's a big part of the story. You'll see projects spinning up in the British Virgin Islands, BBI. You'll see projects that you will you will find in Andorra or you will find in Malta 
And at that stage, they're probably two or three people, or, or you know, it's a relatively small team because at that stage, we don't know what we're going to be as an entity. We don't know exactly where our funding sources are going to come from. Maybe we've done a token raise, and so that that's considered global to some extent. Now, Mika regulation in Europe coming in later, that's going to change things to some extent. Um, whether you want your token raising to be fully KYC or not, that's going to differ depending on where you are. So I can see a battleground coming there. The big question is kind of later on, what is the role of big finance and venture capital in the scaling of some of these projects? You know, can they bootstrap their way to the top? Can they community raise their way to the top? Or are they going to require support from more significant, more traditional sources of finance? And when I was talking to Jose as well, the, the example of Anchorage came up, which was a you know, Portugal founded or founded by a Portuguese. Um, and Anchorage moved from where they were and they're now set up and established in the US because that was where they were going to raise their Series D. And a lot of the issue was that the great projects or the great technology companies that started in Europe or started outside of the US are migrating there because that's what's required to raise the significant sums of capital to get to those billion, trillion dollar valuations. And I, I hope that the US isn't this kind of giant gravitational force where all of the successful projects have to migrate to or have to go and create a listing or have to go and create an entity out there. And if that's where they are, that's where they're regulated, the people are going to follow. You don't have to have your entire organization out there, right? IBM sure. was US headquartered and we were based not there a lot of the time. That's um, but you would love to believe that there's a different way. But the sad fact of life is I still believe that in Web3 today, money talks. That's true. So, so that brings another question, which I think as we were looking into this from investment perspective, we look into the correlation of existing asset classes because we view crypto as a fifth asset class, right? Which is meant to change things, provide diversity, provide an alternative sort of way to look at things, uh, which nothing has changed in the investment world for quite some time, with the exception of new products so here and there, wrapping the same concepts of liquidity and risks along with it. And we looked into this as rethinking liquidity in, in, in investment space. And so, as you described this, that the gravitational force, the United States and many of the you know, countries that actually have the power of capital, what is the role of this capital in the growth of Web3O? Because if let's say we completely rely upon the Web3O capital itself, which is the typical layer one, but truly liquid assets, as opposed to fiat, as opposed to the USD, as opposed to the, where do you see the geographical flavor to that, that construct, if, if that makes sense? That's a good question. I mean, what, that's a really interesting thought experiment to say if if crypto and blockchain were to survive only on its existing capital or in only yeah. in the existing treasury and the digital assets that it has. Now, to some extent, those assets would have to be exchanged for fiat somewhere along the line. So it's not necessarily you, you can't just kind of switch off fiat and suddenly yeah. assume that all of this is going to happen perfectly by itself. But it could. What would be the implication? Maybe you see some of the projects that need funding for developers who are expensive or for growth and expansion, that happens more slowly. Maybe the battle for capital becomes more intense. And so you see more quality and less volume of projects. Would that necessarily be a bad thing for innovation or experimentation? Maybe, maybe not, because the, the more people you see cutting lines of code, the more open source code becomes available, the more forks you see. And you only have to have one branch turn out to be exceptional. Yeah. Maybe the project doesn't make it, but the idea can, and that can be picked up and progressed. So I, I would like to believe that 
you would still see great innovation, even if you didn't see those significant capital flows coming in. At the same time, I still believe there's a significant amount of money wasted in Web3 as well. If I look at some of the valuations, some of the projects that are getting funded that deliver marginal utility. I've been spending a decent amount of time in gaming and evaluating gaming as a vertical within Web3. And you're seeing you know, multiple tens of millions of dollars being put into individual games, which are producing digital assets that are not interoperable that are not available on multiple marketplaces, where the roadmap is very little beyond just, here's a video game where you equip stuff to something and you get the concept of ownership. So it's in your wallet and there it is. And, that, and that's, that's the promise and $40 million of capital later. You're thinking, who spend, how are you ever going to return 40 million for that concept? That's true. And so if we, if we saw less of that, would that be a bad thing? Well, possibly because it might force us to raise the bar. Wow, that's fascinating. No, I, that, you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a thought experiment, and I think you know I've had many conversations with you, uh, Anthony, on, on many occasions about different things, and I, I think that what's most fascinating about Web 3.0 is convergence of technology, economics, business, legal, all into one. So suddenly now you find a blockchain guy suddenly becoming an economic expert, being abreast with what's happening with the legal, which is not the case of in the in the real Web 2.0 world, where you're very focused on one thing. You're either a technologist or you're a a business development guy or your, your lawyer. So I think what you're saying is certainly um, very fascinating. Yeah, I don't know what you guys Amazing. you know had as a pre-described format for how you run these shows, but I, I, I thank you for kind of letting me expand on what I think is a thought experiment as we go through this, because I haven't heard yeah. many other people talking about this expansively. This started with a conversation with Jose, and, and we'll probably put a link to him below, because he's, he's definitely worth, I hope he sure. goes and creates a show, because a, a blockchain historian, I think would be a really powerful yeah, um, recipe for a really interesting I show. Thought that's Laura Shin. Yeah. I thought that was Laura Shin. Laura Shin wrote a whole book into history of Ethereum, though. But you're right, we, need, we do need blockchain historians, because it's, it's 13 year mark, we need to start you know, uh, That's right. cataloging these things. <laughs> you know, we we have a uh, we have a blockchain clinical psychologist at our um, blockchain breakfast, <laughs> and <laughs> that, that might help some of us uh, get through this process too. Um, so, been so certified already. Well, actually, it's been it's been quite fascinating because he's been discussing things like um, conspiracy theories and uh, and and who who suffers from the illness and how does it occur. Um, and uh, and then he, he discusses you know other areas about um, you know a, 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 about not not actually genuinely knowing a great deal about this space, but trying your very best to know a great deal about it, and and each of the challenges associated with it. And everyone sits around the table, sort of nodding their head, going, "Yeah, that's me." <laughs> so so we're we're all going through this. We're all going through this process of rapidly learning. And 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 the thing is, is so interesting about it. Is that it's evolving like i talked about before when when we talked about you know where were all the first monies coming from in this space well they were coming from the finance centers now they're starting to come from other centers and and if you look at how it's going to occur it's going to keep evolving i mean as web 3.0 occurs that's not driven by the same money that's driven by the finance centers by decentralized finance so you know i kind of i kind of wrap it up by a bit of a takeaway here maybe anthony you know if you could wave your magic wand which country location, group of personnel, would you have to, because I'm giving you one, um, start your Web 3.0 project and launch it? Wow. You're asking me to pick favorites. <laughs> yeah, it's Sophie's I, choice, isn't it? 
<laughs> I, uh, that, that's, that's a really hard one. I think, uh, you know, with, with the hand on my heart, I would love to see Portugal succeed because I think you've got a lot of the existing um, principles and history behind what Web3 could be existing here. You've got a, a societal and a, uh, an adventurous spirit. You've got the history as a trading hub. You've got the kind of open look to the West, the East, the South, the North. Portugal faces every direction. So to yes. that extent, I think that becomes incredibly powerful. You've got incredible legal talent here. I think the, the technology and the entrepreneurial spirit here is, un, is, is underappreciated. Um, is, it reg, is it regulatory as mature as elsewhere? Probably not yet. Um, yeah. Would, would you come in and say, I've got absolute certainty? No. If I was going to try and create a hybrid of who's got the best regulation, who's got the best weather, who's got the strongest community, who's creating some of the best developer talent, um, you know, where we got the largest pool or, or clusters around, um, the, you know, economic expertise as well. I don't think there's a single country today that brings all of those things, honestly speaking. And it's on us as a community, I think, if my thesis is that the country isn't going to do it for us, it's for us as a community to start fostering these centers of expertise and to allow decentralized capital uh, an open market and a low barrier to entry to start creating some of those clusters wherever they may be and then to celebrate them as soon as we find them right so yeah. i want to see the, the token economy center of excellence coming out of areas where there's really great understanding of the fundamentals of economics because if you look at macroeconomics if you look at national economics fiscal policy monetary policy that's exactly how you design your cryptos or how you design your token economy. It's based on the exact same principles we've always had. If you look at creating communities around interest or scarcity or hype or common interests, this is not new. We've been doing this and there have been theories around this since kind of Greek and Roman times. We, we have the tools. We just haven't been able to surface them in an addressable way for the people who are working on this today. And, and I think we're still, still going to see clusters rather than winner takes all. Or at least that's what, yeah. I, that's what I'd like to believe to be true. Well, Anthony, no, um, well you've, you've voted with your feet. You are in Lisbon, <laughs> you are in Portugal. So clearly you believe, you believe what you're saying there. And, 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 um, and, and the fact that you were preparing PowerPoint presentations next to the swimming pool prior to our discussion is very compelling to move to Portugal at the same time. Look, um, you're very much approachable on LinkedIn. So for those people that maybe want to know a little bit more about moving their project to Portugal or talking about where best to domicile a project, etc., um, look for Anthony Day, um, based in um, based in Lisbon now. And and if you don't find Anthony along the way, by all means, you can always contact us and we'll introduce you across to Anthony. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. and and taking us through a quick journey of the extraordinary places to be able to develop uh, blockchain technology. And Nitin, thank you for bringing your friend along. No, no, absolutely. And Anthony, I know as IBM colleagues and now as industry professionals, you know, I've always respected your, you know, your point of view and your involvement in the industry. And again, thanks for coming onto our show. And, and uh, you know, we continue to talk to each other and follow each other's sort of podcast and I'm you know looking forward to your next episode of blockchain won't save the world though from this conversation I think it's certainly on the path of saving the world but that's a whole different conversation for a different topic for a different era thanks again and very good. appreciate the time I appreciate it guys thank you for giving me the, the platform good on you yeah. good night to you good afternoon to yeah. you good morning to you
<laughs> Good night to you, Derek. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.